Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the 24th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in the age of the internet and we want to help. It's great to be back in the hot seat for our first episode of 2024 after a very well-deserved break. Yes. What have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Well, today on the show, you're going to hear a review of a Japanese animated feature, which is one of my favourite kinds of movie. And we know that that one's suitable for kids aged seven and up. And in our newly named third segment, Zooming Out, we're going to be going somewhere we haven't gone before. Read the name change. We've been wanting to capture the idea of looking at the bigger picture, which is what we really do in that third segment, but also acknowledging how much of our lives we live in virtual spaces. So the word Zoom seemed to fit quite well there. Anyway, before we get to all that, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, demystify it to better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing some research out of the United States of America about parenting teenagers regarding online sexual risks on smartphones and social media. It's mm. not just a discussion about the birds and the bees, it's about <laughs> the birds and the behaviors. So stay tuned. Cool. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of the USA about early adolescent sexual risks with smartphones and social media and where parents fit into all of that. The researchers came from the discipline of nursing and they were looking at parental awareness and protective practices. Kim, why did they do the research? Liz, it's uh, expected that as parents, there comes a time when you have to explain to your child about the birds and the bees, but... Hmm. What about the internet age when it seems as though children are being exposed to explicit content at an earlier age? Mm, yeah. Researchers wanted to know what it's like for a modern day parent and how effective is the message getting across about how to be safe online? Yeah. Do kids know that they shouldn't feel pressured to send photos of themselves or how to supervise their children's online content? Yeah, and it must be a pretty scary area of parenting for the modern parent. So it's good that people are paying attention to that. How'd they go about doing this research? What was their method? The authors interviewed 15 parents and asked oh. questions like, what are the types of devices in your home that can access the internet? How did you decide who would supervise the smartphone activities? And were these decisions effective? Can you give some examples of any actual instances in which an adolescent you know has experienced something dangerous online? Hmm. Yeah, so very much a qualitative study, just talking to people in a room, wasn't it? It wasn't a survey strictly or anything quantitative. They weren't measuring things with numbers, were they? Yes, it was all face-to-face -face interview. Yeah. So what'd they find? Parents were aware of the risk of exposure to things like pornography and online predators. Mm -hmm. The parents were also good at monitoring and restricting online access to explicit content hmm. using things like filters and net nannies and things. Right, good. Parents used open, direct communication about appropriate online content and contact with strangers. 
Hmm. However, the parents struggled to protect their kids for online activities outside of the home Hmm. where they had less of an influence. There was also a blind spot regarding sexting. So parents weren't really aware of their teenagers sending explicit messages to their friends or anyone online Hmm. through direct messaging. Yeah, that's a really different thing, isn't it? Like it's one thing to when kids encounter content that's been produced by a stranger on a website or something like that or through some kind of software, but uh, when it's just they're using their own camera phone and text messages to create and disseminate the content, that's a very different kind of dynamic. So it was good that they picked up on that. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, for most parents nowadays, we wouldn't have grown up with that form of communication. So it is a new Mm. communication and the authors suggested that this was a possible area of vulnerability. So it could be a generational thing. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And this this also confirms uh, your really important podcast with Jen Hoey. Yeah, right. My kid in episode 13, Uh where she highlighted the stories of families that she worked with where boys were getting caught up in sextortion. Hmm. Yeah. How's that work? Just remind us. Uh, Jen described it as young boys talking to someone online, thinking it was another peer, you know, a boy or a girl their age, mm-hmm. but um, getting caught up sending photos of themselves and the predator on the other end saying, look, we're going to send these photos and shame you publicly mm-hmm. to people that know you mm-hmm. unless you do this for us. Yeah, right. What a terrible position for anybody to be in, let alone a vulnerable young person. It's just Very really, distressing. really shocking. And it's just great that Jen's on the case about that. We need to get back to her, I think, and find out what she's up to. So watch this space, listeners, or listen to this space. Was there anything surprising about those findings? Does it fit in with what you already knew? Well, they highlighted recent studies such as uh, 1,200 high school students, almost a quarter reported receiving sexted materials through instant messaging and 17% had admitted to sending sexting materials to others. Mm. Another study found that with uh, surveying 18,000 teens, they found that by age 14, 35% had viewed online pornography. Mm. That's a pretty decent chunk, isn't it? 35%. Yes. Mm. Yeah, over a third. Yeah. The authors suggested that more needs to be done to educate parents about the dangers of sexting amongst mm-hmm. teenagers. Yeah, well, it, it does seem really interesting to me that they're making that finding even now because I thought that sexting was something that you know we're all highly aware of, that it is the kind of thing that gets in the news because it can lead to this terrible situation where the child who has sent the text is theoretically a child sex abuser because that's part of the definition of of child sex abuse and that isn't necessarily an exemption if you're a child yourself or if it's a picture of you yourself and and then when when other children share the image that's been sent then you know obviously that's um a serious concern too so anyway i thought it was all really quite well known so that finding that um parents need to be told more about it. Maybe it's something to do with the US. Maybe they don't talk about it so much there because they do have different kind of sexual mores there. So the way it sort of plays through the media and the news cycle might be a bit different. I don't know. It really interests me. Yeah. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I was really 
sort of educated about this through the SBS series, The Hunting, that was oh, filmed yeah. right here in Adelaide. And that was oh, a really yeah. good series. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was a great, real eye-opener. Yeah. Um, oh, we should post a link to it in the show notes because some um, yeah, it would be. If it's still yeah. available. Yeah, should be somewhere. Yeah, I'll check that out, actually, definitely. Um, so do you have any reservations about the findings? The authors pointed out that their findings were not generalizable to all parents of teenagers, mm -hmm. given the limited number of parents that they interviewed, uh -huh. only 15, yeah. um, in a very specific area in the US. Mm. That's what um, we call a small sample in research speak, isn't it? Yep. Yes, small, small mm. sample size and limited geographic origin, mm. indicating a need for a more diverse sample. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we commonly find with research, that people just start off with a very small study and then they use that to get funding to do a bigger study and so on. So we can just sort of watch this space with those uh, particular researchers and see what else they can come up with. But I think it is worth noting the methodology. It's always worth noting the methodology that um, researchers use and particularly when it's like this very small sample size, very interpersonal, very qualitative, that's quite a different thing from when you've got a big randomised controlled trial and, and it's all um, anonymised and so on. Just different kind of research. Yeah, okay, so that's a big reservation on that. And um, do you think it'll affect your practice as a psychiatrist? Do these sorts of issues cross your desk much there? Every now and then I'm referred a case of concerns regarding sexualized behaviors and this mm. paper will help me to approach this in a sensitive and more supportive way that's for sure yeah okay that's good and what about parents what can they take away from it that should be a fairly direct message there i guess with this one next thing among teens it happens no <laughs> joke yeah yeah that's right so it's something that's just worth getting on the front foot about you know i always think that's the best thing just normalize it in the sense of you know this is something that we can talk about but it's, it is just so hard when it comes to stuff to do with sex because there is always that kind of ick factor like in both directions that kids are uncomfortable talking um with their parents about that kind of stuff but yeah you just got to find a way haven't you okay well thank you very much for that and uh, let's see what's happening next Well, that was a pretty interesting tip from Kim about how to approach the phenomenon of sexting and other sexual-based content that children might encounter through their screen use. The paper was by Kendra Allison and colleagues, and the title is Early Adolescent Online Sexual Risks on Smartphones and Social Media, Parental Awareness and Protective Practices. It was published in the Journal of Early Adolescence, and full details are in the show notes. Now it's time for our movie review and Fatima is going to tell us why Ponyo is recommended for children aged seven and up. Hi, I'm Fatima Imtoul and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of Ponyo. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children aged 7 and up, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Fujimoto is an environmental sorcerer who stands on a strange-looking submarine, part machine, part marine creature, and pours substances into the ocean to keep the elements in balance. 
Ponyo is a young goldfish who, along with hundreds of younger siblings, lives with her father Fujimoto under the ocean. One day, while exploring the ocean, Ponyo is trapped inside a discarded glass bottle and washed ashore, to be found by a five-year-old boy named Sosuke. Sosuke lives with his mother Lisa, who works at a senior citizen centre, and his father, Koichi, who is a ship's captain. As Sosuke breaks open the glass jar to free Ponyo, he cuts his finger, producing a drop of blood, which Ponyo licks, causing Sosuke's finger to instantly heal. Sosuke and Ponyo immediately form a bond of love, but the friendship is short-lived because Fujimoto uses his sorcerer's powers to capture Ponyo, leaving Sosuke devastated. The drop of blood Ponyo ingested causes her to develop strong, magical powers which enable her to transform into a little girl and escape from her father. However, Ponyo's use of magic causes an environmental imbalance, resulting in storms, tidal waves, flooding, and the appearance of prehistoric marine creatures. During a violent storm, we see Ponyo riding the backs of giant waves as she chases after Sosuke and his mother, who are trying to outrun the storm. Ponyo is eventually reunited with Sosuke as he reaches the safety of his house. Fearing for the safety of the residents at her workplace, Sosuke's mother leaves him and Ponyo at home and goes to attend to the senior citizens. The following morning, the storm has cleared, but Sosuke's village is left submerged in floodwaters. Finding no sign of Sosuke's mother, the children brave the floodwaters to go in search of her. Meanwhile, Fujimoto has contacted Ponyo's mother, the sea goddess Grandma Mare, to help put the planet back in order. Grandma Mare informs Fujimoto that if Ponyo becomes permanently human, the world will revert back to normal, but that in order for this to happen, Sosuke must prove his love for Ponyo. There is no deliberate interpersonal violence in this movie, but there are several scenes where the characters are hurt or in peril, including where Ponyo becomes trapped in a glass jar and then Sosuke breaks the jar open with a rock. Ponyo at first looks dead but revives quickly. The floodwaters create peril both to Lisa and to Sosuke, and Fujimoto is nearly churned up by a boat's propeller. In addition to the scenes just described, there are some elements in this movie that could scare or disturb children under the age of five, including Fujimoto's gaunt and threatening appearance, and the sea goddess's qualities as a giant woman gliding beneath the surface of the ocean, but transforming to normal size when appearing on the surface. There are also magical slug-like creatures that transform into giant waves. Another transformation that could confuse young children is where Ponyo turns into a girl and then back into a fish-like creature. There is no product placement, sexual references, nudity or sexual activity in the film, but Fujimoto's behaviour with the elixir could be seen as a kind of substance use. There is also mild name-calling, including freak show, jerk, bug off, accursed humans, weird and ugly. Ponyo is a superbly animated fantasy film and is likely to be entertaining for children, particularly between the ages of 5 and 10 years, but also for older children and adults. 
Younger children will find the film's lead characters, Sosuke and Ponyo, both likeable and inspiring. The main messages from this movie are that pollution caused by humans is taking its toll on the world's oceans. Love conquers all. It is best not to judge others by appearances and the need sometimes to take chances, even a giant leap into the unknown. Values in this movie that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include kindness and respect, bravery and empathy. This movie could also give parents the opportunity to discuss with their children certain attitudes and behaviours and their real-life consequences, such as where Sosuke's mother disobeys an evacuation order. Young children might also want to be reassured that they would never be left alone in a house, as Lisa does to Sosuke and Ponyo. Ponyo is available on a popular streaming service, and the CMA reviewers recommend it for children aged 7 and up. Parental guidance for five to six-year-olds. For children under five, best to find another movie. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Fatima talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab and then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added, depending what you're looking for. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as some selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, which is facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on about how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time for Zooming Out. Liz and I recently saw a piece in the conversation that got us thinking about sexual content on TikTok. Kim, we've covered TikTok before, but this time we're coming back to look at what people are saying about sexual content on there, just continuing the theme from uh, the earlier segment. Now, what would you normally understand by sexual content in this context? Any kind of material depicting sexual behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So you think about sexual behavior and that could be sexual activity or it could be sort of just acting in a sexualized way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anything to do with bodies, you know, trying to attract another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's a bit of a gray area between just people wanting to look attractive and people wanting to look sexualized. And um, that's, you know, maybe something that people need to think through and talk with their kids about as well because I think probably quite a lot of young people just want to look nice and they don't necessarily realize that what they think of as looking nice can actually be interpreted as wanting to attract other people sexually. Yeah anyway the concern that arises out of sexual content is always worth considering because I think traditionally in our society and particularly in the US like I mentioned before and our culture is very influenced by the US we tend to think of it as a matter of 
morality as a matter of there are certain kinds of sexual behavior that are just wrong or immoral and we need to keep people away from that and especially keep young people away from it but then there's another angle that's developed in more recent years we would say the last you know 30 40 years i suppose that's more about the impact on attitudes to relationships and to bodies and so you get into things like self-objectification buying into stereotypes and then there's what we often hear referred to as um, rape culture and that is connected to incel culture that culture of men feeling very uh, put out that they don't have sexual access to women and, um, and having a very problematic attitudes about all of that so there's all of this stuff that's about relationships and about bodies and it's not just about sex and, and who should be having sex with whom and when and how and so on but it's actually more about how it affects our lives more broadly when we have certain attitudes to to sex as well as the kind of sexual behaviors that we engage in do we think that within western culture that some exposure to sexual content might actually be beneficial well, look, my personal view is yes, you know, sex is part of life and there's absolutely no reason not to, to talk about sex and not to depict sex. The question is, you know, how is it being talked about? How is it being depicted? I think one of the big dangers is that sex can be made out to be a much bigger part of life than it actually is because it is so prevalent in the media and in certain kinds of media. And uh, so a child growing up, surrounded by all of these images can get the idea that sex and sexual activity and being sexually attractive are a much bigger part of life than they really are or they really need to be or the idea that well we can decide how big a part of life we want to make it for ourselves but anyway sexual content can include positive messages about body acceptance and also there's support for members of sexual minorities i mean not not just sexual minorities really although that is a big concern because i guess if you're a member of a sexual minority then you have a bit more of a difficult road to go along to get to information that you need and so it's easier to put the roadblocks in the way of getting that information but young people generally just need information about sex about relationships and and how to manage all of that and they need to be able to discuss that amongst themselves and that's something that can happen through digital technologies which is obviously a positive thing or can be a positive thing and as i said there's the thing about body acceptance as well that those messages can come out uh, also through digital technology so that's great do you think that being protective under a moralistic framework is healthy or does it put us at risk of raising a generation of prudes? <laughs> well, allow free reign down a hedonistic path towards hell is the opposite. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that is one way of framing it, isn't it? And as I mentioned before, it's one that we're very familiar with. And there are a lot of strong signals in our culture and in the history of our culture that are about um, you know, no sex outside marriage, that's immoral, that's wrong. You know, if, if you're an unmarried pregnant woman, then that's a matter of shame and, and so on. And um, you know, there's a, a lot of morality and moralism flying around there. And I, I guess the more I go through life, the more I think, well, morality is often based in something that's real and that is about people's real human needs and, and psychological and emotional needs. But at the same time, as soon as we start to get 
judgmental about people and to put people down and treat them as you know, less worthwhile because they've done this or that, then that can ultimately be very damaging and counterproductive. And I think um, what we need to also bear in mind at the moment is that now that we're all doing this on <laughs> hugely influential platforms, these discussions get put on steroids. So the whole moralistic side can get put on steroids. But on the other side, the idea that anything goes, that we all just need freedom in our sexuality and we need to um, be accepting of everything that people might want to do, then that gets put on steroids as well. And you know, while it might start as a, a very attractive idea, then it can be taken to quite a great extreme once it goes on to the internet and other kinds of platforms like that. So that's something that we really need to always bear in mind. And what do the TikTok terms of service say about sexual content? Well, okay, I did look them up and they address sexual content under three headings. Well, no, under one heading, which is sensitive and mature themes. And there are three headings under that that are about sex. And then there are two that are about other things, like one of them is about cruelty to animals, for example. But we'll leave that to one side and that's very upsetting for everybody to even think about that, especially children. But anyway, the three headings for sex-related content are sexual activity and services, nudity and body exposure, and sexually suggestive content. So it's pretty much what we were talking about before, that there's the sexual activity side and then there's the suggestive content side. And in between, there's just straight out nudity and body exposure. And there's different things to say about each of those. But anyway, I will link to the full guidelines in the show notes, but I just wanted to talk through sexually suggestive content for now. I think that might be the most useful place to start. I'll just read it out. It says, we welcome performances and dances where people can creatively express themselves, celebrate their culture or seek to entertain. We are mindful that certain behaviours related to sexual arousal or suggestiveness may be offensive to some people. So it's that offensive, that idea of morality again and may put young people, which they define as under 18, at risk of exploitation. So they're concerned about exploitation, not so much about the um, impact on the child's self-worth or anything like that. And then in bold, it says, we do not allow seductive performances or allusions to sexual activity by young people or the use of sexually explicit narratives by anyone. We do allow some artistic content with sexual references, such as song lyrics. Content is age-restricted if it shows seductive performances or sexualized posing by adults or allusions to sexual activity by adults. Content is ineligible for the FYF. Now, that's the For Your Feed, I think it stands for. If it shows sex products or intends to sexually arouse, such as intimate kissing, sexualized posing and seductive performances or allusions to sexual activity by adults so it covers a real lot of different things and it's it's very complicated and i suppose the idea would be if you see something that you're concerned about then with that particularly in mind you can look at those couple of paragraphs and see where it fits in but the article that we were reading from the conversation which i'll link to in the show notes gives the example of a content creator who in their words posts suggestive and hypersexual content she calls herself a daddy's girl and presents as younger than she is so it sounds like that's okay that that is allowed under these terms of service which as we just saw are very complicated but i guess because she's an adult she can present herself as younger than she is and call herself a daddy's girl and that that passes muster as far as tiktok's concerned 
Are social media platforms like TikTok providing adequate moderation? Well, they have both human and automated moderation, but apparently kids can get around it with what they call algo speak, which is where they put different symbols into words where, for example, if a word has an S in it, they'll just put a dollar sign instead of the S so that the algorithm can't pick up that word. And that's a whole thing. Yeah. So I'm not sure what you do about that. Probably means that you just need more human moderation. And um, it's very pie in the sky to think that human moderation can cover everything that goes on on a big platform like TikTok. But then also I always wonder, well, you know, if they're making such huge profits, these platforms, then, you know, maybe they can employ an army. I don't see why that's necessarily out of the question, but it, it is an idea that no one seems to be terribly interested in. I think the real issue is to know what kind of content gets seen And this article is good because it explains why it's more of the damaging stuff than the positive stuff. Because informative, inclusive and sex positive content may not receive the same engagement as more lewd and attention grabbing videos since like most social media apps, TikTok is optimized for engagement. I think that's really key there. And it's not just TikTok, but that's how social media platforms tend to work, that they push out more of the content that gets more engagement. So if something gets a lot of attention, then they will push it out to more people. And that's clearly a bit of an issue when it comes to young people wanting to get onto a platform like TikTok and be able to access a range of content that the algorithm tends to narrow it down. What solutions are being proposed? Media, literacy skills, parental monitoring, regulatory intervention? Well, media literacy skills are a really nice idea and they sound really sort of inoffensive and maybe a little bit challenging to get out there, but um, you know, worth a try. And you know, people are very attracted by this idea of education. But um, you have to always bear in mind that a lot of children accessing these platforms are too young to have had that kind of education so it's not a solution in my view parental monitoring great idea and obviously we want to empower parents as much as possible to monitor what their children are engaging with but it's again always going to have some gaps and so i would always fall back on regulatory intervention that you manage these things at the source rather than after they've been pushed out and and don't put the onus on um people who already don't have terribly much power to take care of it all. Now, listeners, just before we sign off, I wanted to tell you about a survey I've been involved in developing, and we're really keen to get as many respondents as we can by the end of January. The survey has been developed in partnership with the University of South Australia and it gives Australian parents the opportunity to express their views on the classification system in Australia, what it is and what it could be. It's actually quite interactive and fun and it should take about 10 to 15 minutes to complete. We hope to use the results to influence development of a new system that actually works for Australian families so your voice really does matter. You can participate by clicking on the survey link in the show notes. So please check it out there and make a little bit of time to be heard. Thanks. Well, that's about all we have time for today. 
Yes, that's a wrap for episode 24. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can leave a comment there. Otherwise, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod or One Word. Or you can email us at Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, and even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by subscribing to the show on your listening platform and or on Substack. It's worth doing both because on Substack you get an email when a new episode drops or there's other news and you can also join our listener community. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform. Make it easier for others to find us. And this, this has been, been the team, team from Outside the Screen. See you soon.